If you left Jerusalem and you headed north and you went to Galilee and Capernaum and you actually went past the Sea of Galilee and you kept traveling to the northernmost parts of the country, uh, if you went to the borderlands up in northern Israel, you would find that's where the headwaters of the Jordan rivers begin. There are fountains and springs of water there that ultimately form the Jordan River. But also there in the northern country, as far north as you can go, about 150 miles, like I said, north of Jerusalem, you will find a cave. And not just any cave, but a significant cave for folks who subscribe to Greek mythology. Uh, in the early centuries, first century and a couple centuries before, there was a, a big belief that in one particular cave, 150 miles north of Jerusalem, the Greek god Pan was born. Half beast, half god. Uh, the God that gave himself over to unrestrained sex and lust and pleasure. And it was there in a cave in the northern part of Israel that a lot of people believed that Pan was born. It became known as the cave of Pan. And in the early centuries, it became known as the gate to Hades, the gate to the underworld, the gate to the realm of the dead. And matter of fact, if you went to Israel today, uh, you could go there. We went there a couple of years ago. And it's a beautiful part of the country. It's much cooler uh, than some of the lowlands in the southern part of the country. And so there's a lot of green vegetation, a lot of springs. It's just a beautiful place. But you'll find that there is this cave known as the Cave of Pan that some people believe that Pan was born in. You'll also find that all throughout this rock wall, there's little bitty shrines where people would come and place statues uh, to worship Pan. And so this is what you find in northern Israel. And for generations upon generations, this particular region and this particular city, it had been a hot spot for pagan belief and pagan behavior. Because anytime you find pagan belief, it's only a matter of time before you begin to find pagan behavior. And so this particular part of Israel was much different demographically. It was much different in worldview and religious practice than just a few miles south in Capernaum and Galilee and certainly much different than 150 miles south in Jerusalem, the religious headquarters of the nation. Up here in the northern part, it had been very pagan and it had been pagan for generations. Matter of fact, 900 years before Jesus ever showed up on the planet, the first king of the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, Solomon's grandson, Rehoboam, had split the kingdom. There was civil war. And so there was the southern kingdom of Judah and then the northern kingdom of Israel. The first king that sat on the throne of the northern kingdom up in these higher lands this was a guy by the name of King Jeroboam. And Jeroboam built high places. He built altars. He built many temples uh, that were dedicated to the worship of, of pagan deities. And so the north had always had difficulty with paganism. And it had been that way since King Jeroboam. And it had been that way for over 900 years, even after the northern kingdom was destroyed in the 700s BC. And then certainly as the Greeks came along, this began to be a place of long-seated paganism. And it had been that way, like I said, 900 years before Jesus ever showed up. And then about 15 years before Jesus was born in 20 BC, Caesar Augustus, you've probably heard of him in the Christmas story. Caesar Augustus, the leader of the known world, Caesar Augustus, he gifted this northern region and this city that was a hot spot for the worship of Pan, where the cave of Pan was, where the gate to Hades was believed to be. He gifted this northern area, this, this city, uh, to Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is also someone perhaps you've heard about in the New Testament. So he gave it to Herod the Great. 
And so Herod the Great built a temple there in honor of the emperor. And there in that temple, the emperor would be worshiped along with other pagan deities. After Herod died, Philip the Tetrarch, who you also read about in the New Testament, Philip inherited his father's lands, including this northern part of the country. And so in AD 14, when Jesus would have been about a teenager, AD 14, Philip decided that he was gonna rename the city from Peneus to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, naming it after Caesar, and Philippi, naming it after himself. Because when you can name a city, why not throw your name in there as well? And so Caesarea Philippi, that's what he called it. And that's what it was called when Jesus was a teenager. And, and while Jesus was alive on the earth, it was a bustling city. It, it was busy, a lot of commerce, uh, certainly a lot of pagan belief and a lot of pagan practice was still continuing there. And, and this is probably what it looked like in the days of Jesus. This is the cave of Pan. This is the gate to Hades where people believed that the gods would go between the living realm and the realm of the dead. And so this is the temple that Herod built. And so in that temple, the emperors worshiped, other pagan gods are worshiped. Over here are different shrines to Pan and people would come and they would worship him with just things that we're not gonna talk about this morning. But they would worship him with just unthinkable acts. And, and this, was, this was what was going on. This was the hot spot. This was a stronghold. Uh, this was part of what drove the economy in the northern part of the country. And this is what it looked like when Jesus decided that he needed to get away from the heat, both the literal heat and the pressure that the religious establishment was placing on him when he decided that he needed a break and he was gonna leave Jerusalem and he was gonna go north, but he, he really wanted to take a break from ministry because there were so many needs and so many people talking about him throughout Capernaum and Galilee. He decided that he was gonna take his disciples up to the northernmost part of the country, up to this area. And so Jesus is gathered with his disciples and most biblical scholars believe that somewhere right here in front of all of this, and it's there that Jesus asked two of the most famous questions that Jesus ever asked his disciples. The first question was, who do people say that I am? And so he asked them that question with the temple that Herod built, all the shrines to Pan, with all of this you know, narrative that's in the background and the disciples, they full well know the narrative that they're a part of in that particular geography. Jesus said, tell me who people say that I am. And then, of course, the disciples start saying things like, well, you know, some people, Jesus, say you're John the Baptist because you rage against the religious machine always. So it reminds them of John the Baptist. Some people say that you're Jeremiah because he was the weeping prophet and you've got a compassionate heart. And, and Jeremiah, he weeped over people far from God and people have seen you weep over people far from God. So you remind them of Jeremiah. And then some people, because of your miracles, I think, they, they say that you're like a reincarnated form of Elijah because Elijah... The storied prophet of Israel's past had done these incredible miracles. And, and so they said, you know, some people are saying that you're Elijah. But then, of course, Jesus asked the question that many of us have heard before. And if you've not ever heard this question before, you need to know that this is the most important question that you will ever wrestle with. This is the most important question that you will ever answer. For those of you who are Jesus followers, and you know some people that are not Jesus followers, that are far from God, that they have no faith that Jesus is the Son of God, if you know somebody who's far from God, you need to know that this is the only question that they need to wrestle with at this point in their journey towards faith. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and after he says, who do the people say that I am? He looks at them and says, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he was talking to the 12 collectively, but he was also speaking to them individually. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because how you answer that question 
That shapes everything about your life. Who do you say that I am? And of course, Simon Peter. Simon Peter knew the right answer and he was a leader and he spoke up and he didn't care, you know, to answer first. And it says, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah. Some translations call it the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And when Peter called Jesus the Messiah, there's a lot of narrative to that. There's a lot of knowledge that goes along with that because the word Messiah simply meant that Peter, he believed that the Old Testament promised a savior, that the Old Testament Jewish prophets, that they looked to the future and they promised a day when God would send a savior, not only to the nation of Israel, but to all the nations of the world. And when Peter said, I believe that you're the Messiah, he was saying, I believe that the one that Moses talked about would come. I believe you're him. The one that Isaiah talked about and predicted would come. I believe you're him. The king, the savior that Jeremiah talked about. I believe that you're him. The one that Malachi talked about. Both the minor prophets and the major prophets. Peter was saying, I believe that you are the promised one. The one that has been promised to save the world. And so this was a very big statement. This was just not, hey, I got the right answer on an important quiz question. This is the most important question and Peter nails it. Because this is what Christianity rises or falls upon. The idea that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God. If Jesus is the Messiah, track with me for just a minute. If Jesus is the Christ, if he is the son of God, it changes everything. If Jesus is not the Christ, if Jesus is not the son of God, nothing matters. Nothing matters. There's no prescribed value to anything in the universe unless we prescribe it. There is no inherent value to anything because we're all just biological chance, physics and chemistry that just happened to happen. But if Jesus is the Christ, if he's the son of the living God, then we have an explanation for everything that is around us. We have an explanation for us. We have an explanation for those around us. If Jesus is the Christ, if he is the son of the living God, it changes everything. Now, let me also say this, if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, again, we're glad you're here, we built this place for you. But if you're not a Jesus follower, then you need to know that this right here, this is the starting point of faith. This is the issue that you wrestle with before you wrestle with any of the other big questions about life or the origins of life or the purpose of life or about any other issue. The question is, who do you think Jesus is? This right here is the starting point of faith and Peter nailed it. So when Peter got the answer right, Jesus looked at Peter and said, hey, you got this right, but only because my father in heaven revealed it to you. And then Jesus went on not only to make a statement, but he went on to make a prediction. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus made a prophecy. We don't often think about Jesus in those terms, but in this minute, Jesus makes a prediction. And I think it's the greatest, most significant prediction that Jesus would ever make. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, on this rock, on what you just said, this truth, this idea, which was really the truth that represented a person, which was Jesus himself. Upon this rock, I will build my, everybody talk to me, church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades, because he's standing right there in front of the temple that Herod built. And right behind the temple is the cave of Pan. It's also known as the gate to Hades. And so Jesus, he takes all of this narrative and it's like he's saying, The best that the enemy has to throw at us, the worst that hell can bring at us, will not destroy the thing that I have come to start. The gates of hell, the gates of death, the gates of whatever all of that is, 
will not prevail against this thing that I have come to start called the church. And so he says this, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're looking at this whole imagery behind him, and it makes perfect sense to them. They see this system, they see this pattern of belief and behavior that's infiltrated the northern part of Israel and had for nearly a thousand years. And Jesus said, this seems to be such a stronghold. This seems to be something that has defined this culture for a thousand years. And there's so many other things that go along with it. But I want you to know, Jesus would say, that not even the gates of Hades will prevail against this thing that I have come to start. And in this moment, Jesus predicts the church. He didn't predict, you know, a place. He predicted a people. He didn't predict a building. He predicted a movement. Now, I hope you know this. If you've been around the creek for any time at all, you should know this. But if you're new to the creek, hey, I'm glad you're here. You need to jump on the train with the rest of us. If you're in Somerset or Williamsburg, you need to know that the building that you're gathered in right now, whether you're renting in Somerset and you'll have a building, God willing, by this time next year, we're not building a church, we're building a building. Those of you there in Williamsburg, here in London, this is not a church. The building that you're sitting in is not a church. You are the church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are the church. We are the church. Jesus didn't predict a denomination. Jesus didn't predict a particular system. Jesus didn't predict a building, a meeting, or anything like that. Jesus predicted a people, a people, a people that would believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God. And so as he's saying this, you know, I, I try to make it sound as dramatic as possible. And, and you're thinking, well, that's not very dramatic. Well, okay, I'm sorry. So just, just pretend it is. I, I, I try to put some emotion into it. But there that day in the Northern part of Israel, when Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I imagine it didn't feel special. I imagine it's like many of the sermons you've heard from me over the years. That sometimes it just, mm, nothing special. It's him talking again, kind of the same thing in a different way. And I think that they kind of felt that. I feel like they had no emotional outburst because of that. I don't feel that Jesus said, hey, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail again. I don't think anybody jumped up and down. I don't think anybody raised their hand. I don't think they clapped. I think they just kind of looked at each other like, I think I know what he's talking about, but I'm not sure. And it didn't feel big to them in that moment. It didn't feel significant to them in that moment. It didn't feel special to them in that moment. But it was significant. And it was special. And it was a big deal. And it was something great that Jesus had announced. Jesus was going to build a church. And they had no idea that they were going to be the leaders of that church. And they had no idea that they were going to be a movement of people that would ultimately change the world. They didn't feel it. They didn't sense it. They didn't know they were being swept up into something big that would change the course of history. They had no idea. They're just listening to Jesus. But the more they listened to Jesus, the more they could figure out what Jesus was talking about because all throughout his ministry, he was talking about this day when the church would be a thing and that the church would be a group of people unified by faith. Not that we agree on everything. Not that it matters what's above the door, whether you're a denominational church, a non-denominational church, whether you call yourself Protestant or Catholic. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you believe that he is the Christ, if you believe that he is the son of the living God, you are part of the church. 
You may attend this church, you may attend another church, but if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, we may baptize different, we may serve communion different, we may sing different, we may dress different, church may look different, it may smell different, there may be all kinds of differences about churches. But if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are a part of the church, unified by faith. Jesus said, that's what the church is about. That's the most important thing. The church would be known for love because by this one thing will everybody know that you are my followers, that you love one another. The church will be carriers of a message of hope. And so Jesus would talk about all this. Again, it hardly felt special to them like, like it does to us many of the times. Jesus talked about a church where everybody's welcome. Jesus talked about a church that no matter who you were or what you did, hey, come on in. Whether religion had excommunicated you, rejected you, left you behind, said God doesn't love you, God doesn't care, God has no place for you. Hey, the church, the church has a place for you. And you can be part of the church. When you decide that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and if you say yes, you're in. It was incredible. And they didn't know what they were being caught up in. And that day, Jesus predicted all of us. If you're a Jesus follower, you're part of the church. He predicted you. He predicted me. And today, you are caught up in something great. You are caught up in something big, something special. And you may not feel like it. You're so busy with life. You're so busy with kids. You're so busy with business. You're just so busy. You're distracted with this. You're distracted with that. You don't really think about it. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you are the church. And you're a part of something so significant. You're a part of something that has shaped history, that's continuing to shape history. You are a part of a movement that was founded by Jesus. And it's being built by Jesus, expanded by Jesus. You're part of something incredible whether you feel like it or not. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. We're the habitation of God on earth. We're the temple of God on earth. We are salt. We are light. We are the family of God. We are the church. And it's a big deal. But it may not feel like a big deal. And we may not be living like it's a big deal. Jesus predicted the church, but Jesus just didn't want us to know that we're a part of something big and special. Jesus wanted us to know and understand in the clearest of terms what the purpose of being in the church is all about. What the purpose of life is all about. If you're a Jesus follower, here's something interesting to think about. If you've been worried about the purpose that God has for your life, if you've been trying to find out the meaning of your life, I'm just trying to find out what God wants out of me or what God has for me, what my purpose is. You don't have to ask that question. Your ultimate purpose has been defined. Whether you're a professional, a non-professional. Whether you're college educated, non-college educated. Whether you're white collar or whether you're blue collar. Whether you're an attorney, whether you're a doctor, a professor, a teacher, a state trooper, a firefighter. It doesn't matter. Stay-at-home mom, a babysitter, stay-at-home dad, single mom, single dad. It doesn't matter. Jesus has defined your purpose in the clearest of terms. Jesus has defined your purpose and my purpose in the clearest of terms in such a way that it connects the dots for all the other parts of our life. It informs our parenting for those of us who are parents. It informs our financial stewardship for those of us who are trying to manage our money wisely. It informs all of our relationships and all of our interactions. 
It informs our community involvement. It informs the way that we see people and the way that we see the world at large. Jesus defined purpose in such a way that brings clarity to all the other parts of your life and my life. We just don't think about it that much. So after Jesus died and after he was raised from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples. And before he left, he wanted his last words to become their first priority. Because oftentimes people remember last words of someone they love and care for more than any of the other words that they ever said. So Jesus wanted his last words to become his followers' first priority. And so Jesus, he took them out as far as a place called Bethany and out on the mount called Olivet. And there, Jesus is getting ready to ascend back to the Father in heaven. And before he does, he wants to make sure in the clearest of terms that he hands the men that are going to lead this church, that he hands the people that are going to help lead this church, that he's going to speak to this group of men and women there, and perhaps even children there that day on the hillside, that they would understand what their purpose would forever be as long as they have breath in their lungs. And so it says this, it says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, we know because of other accounts, there were many, many, many more people there that day, as many as 500. But the focus of the narrative, according to Matthew, is on the 11. And, and I don't have time to unpack this because this, this, is, this is just unbelievable. Every single one of us are here today. Every single one of us are here today or watching online somewhere because of these 11 guys. These 11 guys are going to take what Jesus is about to say seriously. And because these 11 took what Jesus said seriously, we are here. We know about Jesus. We've heard the story about what Jesus did, that he took our sins, died in our place, was buried and raised. And the reason that we know this story, the reason that we know about Jesus is because these 11 people are going to take what Jesus is about to say seriously. These 11 who are unqualified, uneducated, they're not wealthy, they're not connected, they're temperamental, they're a bit prejudiced, they're subject to all the things that their culture has raised them to be. But these 11 are going to change the world. And if you'd met them then, if you'd met them that day, if you had seen them that day, you would have not said, hey, there are some world changers. You wouldn't have thought that. They didn't think that. But they were. They had no idea what they were a part of. They had no idea what they were being swept up in. They had no idea the movement that they were jumping into. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You know why Jesus, I think, said that? Because he knew that theirs was a generation that had problems with authority. You know, you know who old people love to talk about? Young people who have a problem with authority. You know what generation has a problem with authority? Every generation has a problem with authority. We've had a problem with authority since the generation of Adam. We will have a problem with authority until the last generation. So he says, all authority. Now you can either believe that, respond to that, submit to that, surrender to that or not. But if a man dies in your place and gets buried and comes back to life, I think he has the authority. But I don't like my plan to be superseded by somebody else's plan. I don't want my will to be superseded by somebody else. I don't want to be told what to do. You don't like to be told what to do. When somebody tries to tell you what to do, you get ticked about it. So Jesus says, hey, just a reminder, all authority, all authority, heaven and earth. Because if you recognize his authority, if you submit to his authority, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, then 
You take what he says seriously, and not only do you take it seriously, but you, you receive it, and you live it. It becomes your life. It becomes your purpose. It becomes your mission. Because the man who died for you, who came back to life so that you could have life, is going to tell you what your purpose is. Why would we ignore that? Why would we put that on a shelf somewhere and just pretend that he'd ever said it? He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And in this moment, he hands them their purpose. He outlines their mission. He tells them what the most important thing in life for the rest of their life should be. He says, if you want to know what the church is about, not just the church corporately, but you as a member of the church, as a part of the body of Christ, if you want to know what being part of the church is about, it's about going and making disciples of all the nations. And again, do you know how ludicrous this was? How ludicrous it sounded? Before social media, before modern transportation, most of these guys have never traveled more than 100 miles probably from where they were born. But Jesus is talking about the ends of the earth. He's talking about going to all the nations. How improbable, how impossible. If we all got together, all 2,000 plus of us that will be at the Creed Church today, and I stood up and said, hey, we're going to all the world and we're gonna change it. It would sound improbable. It would sound unlikely. Where do we start? What do we do? And we have social media. We have airplanes. We have ships. We have motor vehicles. But it would seem so overwhelming. We talk about, hey, God, give us Kentucky. And sometimes that seems so big. That seems such a wide-casted vision. How could we ever do it? We're just a small group of people in London, Kentucky, Somerset, Kentucky, Williamsburg, Kentucky. How could we reach across our state? How could we touch 4 million people? It seems so hard to do. I think they felt a little bit of that. They were going to change the world, whether they knew it or not, because they were about to get caught up into something, and they were about to receive what Jesus said, and they were never going to forget those words, go and make disciples. So a group of men and women who had no power, no army, no territory, no political power, they changed the world. That's just not Bible. That's history. That's history as recorded by the atheist and the agnostic. That's history. That's our history. We are a part of a generation, a generational chain, a generational legacy, a sacred legacy of world changers. A people who stepped out of their average existence. People who were married, people who had professions, people who had kids, people who were single, men, women, empty nesters, full nesters, in the middle. And they stepped into something. And they changed everything. That's what we're a part of. That's our story. They understood that day after what Jesus said, that God's plan, God's ultimate plan here on the earth was to reach people with people. And you know who the people were? They were the people. And you know what God's plan is today? 
to reach people with people. And you know who the people are that God wants to use to reach the people who need to be reached? We are the people. They were God's plan A. There was no plan B. And today, he hands us our purpose in our generation, for our time, in this place, in our part of the world. And he says, this is your mission. This is your purpose. This is what you're living and breathing for. This is why you're good at what you're good at. This is why you work where you work. This is why you built that business. This is why you decided to stay home with the kids. This is why you're teaching in the classroom. This is why you got into that college class. This is why you're on the football team or the basketball team or the cheerleading squad or the academic team. This is why you're there. This is what you do. This is why you exist. And he hands us our purpose and he says, you are plan A. And there is no plan B. So he gave them a clear mission and they understood it and their mission was clear. Love God, love people, make disciples. If you've been around here, we've been saying this for 14 years. Love God, love people, make disciples. Jesus put the ball in front of their face that day and said, don't take your eye off the ball. Don't take your eye off the ball. This is the ball. Love God, love people, make disciples. This is why you're breathing, is to love God, love people, make disciples. This is why you're a teacher, to love God, love people, make disciples. This is why you work where you work and do what you do. This is why you have the hobbies that you have. This is why you love to go to the gym. This is why you love to go walk downtown. This is why you love to do what you do where you do it, is to love God, love people, make disciples. It's your purpose. Don't take your eye off the ball. So Jesus ascended back into heaven and the disciples went to Jerusalem because that's what Jesus told them to do. And 10 days later, there's 120 of them now. And they're praying. And every great move of God that you read about from the New Testament on throughout church history, every great move of God, every great season where God does something special, where God does something that we can't fully explain, but it seems as though God inserts himself in a special way into a period in history, that every single time we find something big and significant happening in church history, it's on the heels of people who are praying. And there they are in the upper room, they're praying. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit of God falls. It's the day of Pentecost, and that's the day that the church is born. And Peter stands up and he preaches. Right? Same message. I mean, he's as redundant as I am. And he's as redundant as Jesus was. Uh, some of you, you don't know how redundant Jesus was. You haven't read what he said. But promise me, he is redundant. Jesus had like four sermons. That's all. And he said them over and over and over again. Peter, he had like one. He remembers back that day in Matthew 16, up there in the northern part of the country. And he stands up on the day of Pentecost. And he says, hey, I got a message for you. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know how I know? Because he came, he lived, he died, he lives. That's the message. This is, this is the starting point of faith. Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus lives. And because he lives, you can live too. You can have an abundant life in this life and you can have eternal life in the life to come. And you know what? Thousands said, it sounds like good news to me. And the first church was a mega church. First church wasn't a small church. First church was a big church. Don't hate on big church. Don't long for small church days. Don't romanticize where everybody knew your name. It's not Cheers, it's not a bar, it's church. <laughs> Go to the bar, they'll know your name, they already do. 
But here, why would you want to be part of something so small where everybody knows your name? Why would, why would you want to sell yourself short? Why would you want to sell your purpose so short? I want to be part of something so big, I hope there's some of you who don't know my name. <laughs> who is that guy up there? But I do hope that we are a group of people that can get other people to know his name because that's the one they need to know. They don't need to know you and they don't need to know me. And it's good for us to know each other, but we can't know all each other's, but it's good for all of us and for those that we love and care about to know him. And that's what was so important to them. And they filled the streets with the story of Jesus. And things began to happen. And thousands more poured into the church and miracles were performed like people like Peter and John. And Peter and John get arrested for their miracle. They get released because the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, the same group of guys that helped put Jesus to death, they don't want to risk an upheaval of the people, so they let Peter and John go. And when Peter and John get let loose after being arrested, because things, anytime God does something, there's going to be a group of people ticked off. Just get ready. If you don't see a group of people near a church or in a church ticked off, then God's not doing anything. That's how you know. But if you hear somebody bellyaching, complaining, whining, God's up to something. He is. That's how you know. There's no chapter or verse, but it's thus saith Trevor. And I think I'm right. There's a group of people ticked off. And so they, they let them go. When they let them go, they went back to the other disciples and they prayed. Because, man, they just, that's what they did. They were praying people. They went back and here was their prayer. They said, now, Lord, consider their threats. They're telling us to shut up. They're telling us to stop this, to knock it off. Enable your servants to speak your word and talk to me with what? Boldness. Stretch out your hands to perform signs and wonders, miracles. God, perform some miracles among us. Some of you are uncomfortable with that kind of language. You shouldn't be. God, perform some signs and wonders. And just FYI, I'll come back to this maybe later on in the fall, but signs and wonders, miracles in the church, throughout church history. Look it up, study it for yourself. It's never been for our benefit. It's been for the benefit of outsiders. So that outsiders would see God doing something with miraculous nature, miraculous power inside the church, among the church. And then all of a sudden they're like, could you all tell us more about what you believe? God, do some signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And they prayed. And the place where they were was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You know what boldness is? It's doing something and saying something when it would be easier to do nothing and say nothing. God, help me to do something. Help me to keep my eye on the ball and to be bold. To be bold on mission. To be bold in my purpose. And the place was shaken. And it says day after day, it was part of their life. It's what they woke up thinking about. It's what they went to sleep thinking about. It's what they were praying about. It's what they were dreaming about. It's what they were talking about. Yeah, they had normal lives and it wasn't just church 24 seven, but, but this informed every part of their life. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching or proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You know why? They were doing what Jesus told them to do. 
And the church just kept growing and growing. And thousands became 10,000s. And 10,000 became 100,000. And hundreds of thousands became millions. And the book of Acts ends with this verse. For two whole years, Paul, who had been a persecutor of Christians until he became one himself, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, who spent 30 years of his life planting churches around the Mediterranean rim of the Roman Empire. Paul has been arrested in Rome. Perhaps the greatest spokesman of Christianity in that generation. And he's under house arrest and it says that he stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness, without hindrance. And I think this last verse not only tells us what Paul was doing, but I believe with all of my heart, it tells us what all the others were doing as well. Philip, and Matthew, and Mark, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Nathaniel, and all the others that we don't know their name. They traveled as far as modern day Russia. They went as far east as India. They went south to Africa. They went to Europe and Asia Minor. And they told people about Jesus, about what Jesus did for them, because that's what Jesus told them to do. And the world changed. 120 years after Jesus died, 120 years after the resurrection, Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, he made this observation. Just 120 years later, there is no people, Greek or barbarian, or any other race, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and the Creator of all things. You know what he was saying? In just 120 years, I can't think of a place that I can go and there's not somebody there who's not praying in the name of Jesus. Tertullian, 50 years later, he says, we are but yes of yesterday, and yet we already fill your cities, islands, camps, your palace, your senate, your forum. We have left to you only your temples. Pagans, the religious and irreligious alike, had flooded into the church. Philip Schaff, who I think wrote the best history of early Christianity, he said it this way. He said, it may be fairly asserted that at about the end of the third century, the name of Christ was known, revered, and persecuted in every province, in every city of the empire because 11 people took what Jesus said seriously. And without a sword, and without an army, without territory, they changed the world. Because they believed this big idea right here Everyone can reach someone, and everyone should reach someone. And they believed that. They lived believing that because that's what Jesus told them the purpose of their life was. So here's what I need our church to do. I need you to believe that. I need you to believe that you're one who can reach someone. And I need you to believe that you are one who should reach someone. I need you to begin to see yourself 
as the follower of Jesus that Jesus said you were. You are a follower of Christ who's in this world to help influence others to become followers of Christ. That is your greatest passion. That should be at the forefront of your thoughts. That is the thing that informs what you do, your career, your profession, the way you spend your money, the way you live your life, your interactions, your relationships. It gives clarity to all of it. So here's what I need us all to do. I need you to get a burden. I need you to get your heart broke for somebody who's far from God. Because we know what happens. Being far from God means hopelessness in this life and hopelessness in the life to come. So come on, what are we doing? What are we doing? Why is our heart not broke for someone, at least one, who's far from God? Why am I not praying for that someone? Why am I not asking God, God, speak to their heart, put somebody in their path. God, I I don't even know how this prayer works for this person, but God, I just want to pray that if I'm that person who can help them, influence them, love them to Jesus, Lord, help me to do that. Put somebody in their path. God, do whatever it takes. Bring that person to yourself. Why why are we not praying that way? Why are we not thinking that way? What, What have we got distracted by? What are we thinking about? Jesus said, this is the ball. Don't take your eye off the ball. What have we got our eyes on? I need you to pray for boldness. God, that's my one. God, if the moment's right and you open the door and the opportunity's there, I want to make that invite. I I want to have that conversation. God, give me the boldness. Give me the boldness. I pray for boldness when it would be easier to do nothing or say nothing. God, expect the miraculous. Expect God to do what God can only do. You can't convince. You can't change a heart. You can't change a life. You can't answer all the questions you were never called to. And live on purpose for a purpose. Live on purpose for a purpose. So who's your one? Who's your one? Do you have one? If not, get one. Because God's plan to reach the people around you is you. Nothing makes my faith feel more alive than when I get this right. Sometimes the work of God gets in the way of the work of God. I'm in this all the time. This is what I do. I live and eat and breathe church and trying to get our church to a better place and move forward and make a difference. But sometimes we all get distracted. But but when I feel like my heart is beating in rhythm with his heart, and when I feel like I've got my eyes on those who are far from God, my faith never feels more alive. That's when my faith journey is never boring. When I'm on task, when I'm on mission, when I'm on purpose, for a purpose. Let me tell you, everything else gets a little better. The music sounds better on Sunday. The sermon sounds better on Sunday. I see things with better clarity. we got to get this right. Nothing will make you feel more alive than when you get your eye on the ball. Nothing will. There was a gentleman who came to my house 
last year and he was coming to price some work. And I, I knew a little bit of his story. I didn't know if he knew me, but in the conversation he said, you pastor that church, don't you? And that cannot either go good or bad. I, you know, it's just a loaded question. It's like, yeah. And we started talking and it was the first time I'd ever talked. First time I heard a conversation. I, I, I didn't, I didn't push it. I didn't make an invite. I, I, I didn't try to, didn't try to steer the conversation. I just, I, I was just sitting there praying, you know, God, I'm just gonna see where this goes and what happens. And it didn't go anywhere. A couple weeks later, came back and he had some information. He was with his wife and it was hot. And Allison went up on the porch and we ended up sitting up there and. All of a sudden, he started asking questions about Jesus. And for the next hour and 20 minutes, maybe two hours, I got to give my, the most passionate, thoughtful, compelling argument for why I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a conversation. It wasn't preachy. It, it was just, and it was better than any sermon I've ever preached to all the people that I get to preach to. I never feel more alive than in that moment. And you won't either. Everything will look different. Everything will be different. When you put your eye on the ball and you realize that you're everyone, you're an everyone, you're an everyone that can reach someone. Nobody gets to faith alone. going to bring on Easter? Who are you going to invite? Who's going to sit in a seat with you? Who, who are you going to bring? Who are you going to put an invite card in their hand to say, hey, I want you to be here with me. And then you pray and ask God to do what only God could do. They may come, they may not like the music, they may not like the sermon, they may not like the smoke, they may not like the lights, but maybe God, the Holy Spirit, does what none of us can do and speaks to that person's heart in such a way that they take a step to Jesus. That's your purpose. That's my purpose. That's our purpose. We are the church. And we change the world once. And we can change it again. Heavenly Father, help us to have a one. Help us to pray for our one. To have a burden for our one. Help us to have boldness. Help us to expect miraculous, miraculous activity from you, God. God, may you begin to shake things around here. May you begin to fill us with boldness and passion and focus because we know what's at stake. May we believe that there's nobody beyond the scope of your love or grace. You are mighty to save. No one is beyond your saving hand.